Hebrews 1.1 to Hebrews 2.9. The seventh talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on November 16, 2014 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2014. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 2, Translation, Installment 1, Update A, accompanies this talk. We are in the book of Hebrews, and we've been looking at the pieces of the argument that he builds in chapter 1 and chapter 2. So we've gone to a variety of psalms and a passage out of Second Samuel, and we will look at a passage out of Isaiah before we're done. But there's one argument in the very first section of Hebrews that we've been focusing on, and I think we need to just put it all together and finish it today. So I'm going to read out of my translation, read that whole section, and comment on it as we go. If you don't have my translation, we're starting at Hebrews 1.1, and I'll be going to 2.4 to begin with. And then if we have time, we'll go on into the next part of the argument. God, having spoken in past times in many portions and in many ways to the fathers through the prophets, has in the last of these days spoken to us through the Son. And the, the idea of the Son is going to become absolutely central to the, argue, the whole argument here. What is the Son? Who is the Son? Becomes vital to what he wants to say to us. He has spoken to us in these last days through the Son. Prophets got dreams, they got oracles, they got burdens, they got the word of the Lord coming upon them in a variety of different ways. God has spoken to the prophets who passed on God's message to the people but he said, in these last days, there's this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who came among us and taught us. That was God speaking to us through his son, revealing to us what he was up to. The final pieces of the picture got put in place when the son came among us and taught us. And what he has in mind here is the gospel message itself, the, the gospel message that was proclaimed by the apostles. Where did they get that? They got that because they were taught by Jesus, the Son. Then he identifies this one that he calls the Son. He's the one whom he appointed heir of all things. He's the one with a view to whom he did in fact make the ages. He's the one who being a shining forth of the very glory of God himself is indeed the very stamp of God's own identity, his own particular identity. So he, in three statements, he talks about how exalted the Son is. And we've talked about that previously, so I won't, I won't dwell on that. But not only did God, did he send his Son, Jesus, to teach us, but he, God, supported everything that Jesus taught us by exerting his power in connection with Jesus' words to, um, to do amazing things. Jesus said to the leper, be healed, cleansed, and he was cleansed. He said to the lame man, walk, and he walked. He said to the blind man, see, and he saw. He said to the deaf man, hear, and he could hear. He said to the wind and the waves, shut up, and they shut up. That God 
had Jesus back. And so over and over and over again throughout his life and ministry, Jesus was constantly having things happen that were supernatural and miraculous that signified the fact that this was no ordinary man. This man was sent from God. And so when he claimed to be the son, when he claimed to be the Messiah, God in so many different ways said, he's my son, listen to him, through these miracles. When this son, we know him as Jesus, had performed the ritual cleansing for sins, and what he has in mind is his death on the cross, when he had performed the ritual cleansing for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much greater than the angeloi as the name he had inherited was more distinguished than their name. So, and why is he bringing this up? Why is he talking about this son, Jesus, being more distinguished than the angeloi? Usually gets translated angels in our English translation. I'm arguing that that probably doesn't capture what he's talking about here. In the background of this, Paul has in mind, knowing that some of the Jews who are beginning to back off of their original belief in Jesus were expecting not a human being to come as the Son of God, but some kind of divine being, some kind of theophany, some kind of version of God having come in the visible form of a human being. But he was God. He was the transcendent God, not an actual, real, ordinary human being. So the fact that Jesus was a real, actual, ordinary human being who could die was a problem to these Jews. That can't be the Messiah. The Messiah's got to have more bells and whistles than that, and Jesus doesn't. So that's going to be underlying everything that Paul is about to say throughout this whole section. Having become as much greater than the angeloi, the various theophanies of God, as the name that Jesus had inherited, namely the name Son, was more distinguished than their name, Angelos, which means messenger. Who's more important, the son or the messenger? It's the son. Now he's going to give us a whole litany of passages to demonstrate how much more important the son is than any messenger. For to which of the angeloi, to which of the messengers, did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? And there he's quoting Psalm 2, which was a song written to the king, of, the king in the line of David who was being coronated king over Israel. On the day that he was becoming king over Israel, this song was sung to him, and it had this line in it. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Today, by being crowned king of Israel, you are becoming the son of God. And what's the concept of the son of God in the background? The concept of the king being the son is the concept of a human king being the very embodiment of the authority and majesty and person of God himself. So the king of Israel is becoming the son, the embodiment of Yahweh, when he's crowned king of Israel in Psalm 2. Paul knows that the ultimate fulfillment of that throne, of that kingly authority, is the man Jesus. So to which messenger or to which a theophany, to which visible manifestation of Yahweh throughout history has God ever singled them out and said, 
Today you are my son. I have begotten you. Never. No matter how spectacular the appearance of God in history, to no one of those appearances did God ever promise that you would be the son who would be king of the eternal kingdom of God. But to David's son he did. To the king of Israel in the line of David he did. And then he repeats, and again, to which of the ongoloi did he ever say, I will be as a father to him, and he shall be as a son to me. That's the original source of the whole promise. In 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, God came to David and promised that he would establish his throne and the relationship of the king to God was going to be this father-son relationship. I will be a father to you and you will be a son to me. To which Angelos did he ever make that promise and make that covenant? None, ever, nowhere. And again, when he brings the firstborn into his I have administration here, or domain, you could have it. I think the idea is when he brings David, the son of David, whoever, whichever one it was, into his throne as king over the domain of Israel, when that happened, it says in Psalm 97, and let all the angeloi of God worship him. And he envisions a time where there's some kind of celebration of the covenant that God made with David. It might have been a coronation. It may have just been some kind of commemoration. But there's some kind of celebration of the Davidic king being made king over Israel. And when he's made king over Israel, the psalmist says to the, all the angeloi, worship him, not God. Worship this king, this human being, this son of David, who God has put in, his, in the throne to be the embodiment of his own divine rule. Worship him. And in that context, in Psalm 97, these manifestations of Yahweh that he's probably talking to are what he calls graven images, these little household gods that people might take around. All these little household gods, graven images of Yahweh, they are nothing. They should be ashamed, the people who are worshiping them in the name of Yahweh, because God has appointed a human being to be the image of Yahweh who would rule over them, not a little stone carving. All those little stone carvings should bow down and worship this human being who is the truly appointed representative of Yahweh. And if, if that's true of them, it's true of any angelos of Yahweh, no matter how spectacular. The burning bush, the pillar of fire by day, the pillar of cloud by night, all the various times that God appeared as a human being, who are they as over against the son of David sitting in the throne as king over Israel? Well, they're God, that's true, but God never said to any one of them, you are the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Just isn't going to happen. It's not God's plan. It's not God's purpose. But he does have in mind this human being who is the son of David. We know him as Jesus. That one day every tongue will confess him as Lord and every knee will bow to him. Because he's the one that God has appointed to be his own proxy. It's this human being that God has appointed to represent him, Yahweh, to the nations, to the world, to all of mankind, to all of history. And we will worship him and we will bow to him because he has that role. Okay, then in the next paragraph, so 
All three of these things, he says, in the background, what he's saying is, don't you see, this was to a human being that God was speaking when he made these claims or about a human being when he made these claims, not about any angelos. Now, with regard to the angeloi, it says, and he quotes Psalm 104, the one who makes winds his angeloi and flames of fire his ministers. And Psalm 104, as we saw, is just simply a meditation on the majesty of God in relationship to the creation. All the created order and everything in it is just so much of the clothing and accoutrements of God or the tools of God or the instruments of God. He makes the realities of nature, his chariots, his mode of transportation, his clothing. It's nothing compared to him. It's just something that serves his purposes. And the angeloi, literally in the context of Psalm 104, would be it's his winds that he makes his angeloi. God uses the winds as his messengers whenever he wants to. So if God can make the wind his messengers, then a burning bush on Mount Sinai, is that some spectacular, is that a God that we should worship? Well, it's a visible manifestation of a God we should worship, but the visible manifestation shouldn't be worshipped any more than the wind that God uses as his messenger should be worshipped. It's just a messenger. It's just a way in which God is getting his, communicating with us and the medium through which he is communicating to us. The God who's communicating is the most exalted being in all of reality, but the medium through which he's communicating It's not that big a deal. It's just a messenger, just an angelos. But of the sun, on the other hand, in contrast to that, but of the sun, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. A praise for the king at his wedding in Psalm 45. But the praise for the psalm at his wedding is a reminder of what an exalted status has been promised to this human son of David, who is the king of Israel. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God has appointed you to an eternal kingdom. And if we're going to understand the significance of that, we have to add to that Psalm 102. And Psalm 102 is a psalm where a Davidic king, probably in Jerusalem, while Jerusalem is under siege, is starving to death, knows he's probably going to die, but begins to meditate on the promise that God made to David, his father, his or grandfather, whoever, made to his predecessor, and recognizes that God promised David that it would be an eternal kingdom, an everlasting throne. It looks like Jerusalem is about to be overthrown by Babylon or Assyria or somebody. It looks like we're not long for this world here. But God promised. So God, now would be a good time to fulfill your promise. But if you don't fulfill your promise now, I know you're going to hear me. And I write this for a future generation, for people yet to come who are not even born yet. I write this. Thank you, God, for I praise you for hearing me in my time of desperation and responding to my promise. Because he knows, he anticipates, however and whenever God does it, he is not going to forsake the promise that he made to his father David. So the kingdom is going to be established. 
and it's going to be established forever, eternally. And in the context of Psalm 102, he reminds himself, the reason that I know that that's going to be fulfilled, that promise is going to be kept by God, is because God is an eternal being. So he writes, he quotes the part of the psalm that says, You, Yahweh, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. And then he doesn't quote the next line, but in the psalm, he talks about the children seeing abiding before him or living before him. I can't remember exactly how he words it. Saying exactly the same thing that Paul is saying here. All this promise that was made to the king at his wedding in Psalm 45, is that BS? Is that hyperbole? Is that just empty flattery that somebody gives a king at his wedding? No, this is a sober, real promise that God made to the line of David. And we know it's going to be kept because the one who made that promise is an eternal being. The whole universe will go away before God goes away. As long as there is a reality, God will be there to govern that reality and to create that reality and to be the author of that reality. So can he keep the promise that he made to David? Absolutely. There ain't no question about it. And then back to the angeloi then in turn. So he said to the angeloi, I can make the winds my messengers. He said to the son of David, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Has he ever to any angeloi ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Did he say that to the burning bush? Did he say that to the pillar of fire? No. That got said to a human being, the son of David. And that psalm we're going to see over and over and over again throughout the book of of Hebrews before we're done. So he has never said that to any angeloi. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Now, I'm not sure of this, but I translated it conservatively. But I actually think that a better way to translate it would be something like, Are they not all ministering winds? Put that in quote. Are they not all just ministering winds sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? The reason I think that, that would be, in English, that would make no sense at all. We'd have no reason to know that. But go back up to 1.7. Now, with regard to the angeloi, it says, the one who makes winds his angeloi, What's translated winds there is the Greek word pneumata, which typically gets translated, pneuma typically gets translated spirit. But it means, the basic meaning of the word is wind. That's probably the most typical meaning of the word. That's clearly what it means in Psalm 104, I think, and that's how it gets translated here in our English text. That's how I translated it. The one who makes pneumata his messengers and flames of fire his ministers. The one who makes winds his messengers and flames of fire his minister. When we get to 114, the, the last sentence in that paragraph, are they not all ministering pneumata sent out to render service for the sake of those who inherit salvation? And it, it's in the same paragraph, I think, that he's calling them ministering pneumata. 
I don't think that's an accident. He started off by saying, God can make pneumata, winds, his angelos, his angeloi, his, serv- his messengers. God can make the pneumata his messengers. Did God take an angelos and ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet? Aren't they just winds that God sends for his purposes to minister and accomplish his purposes? Didn't we just read that in Psalm 104? Didn't we just read that God can make anything serve his purposes? He can take the winds and make them use his services. So I think it's his way of saying, aren't they just on the same level as the winds that God takes and uses to do whatever he wants to do in the world? That's all they are. Just one part of God's creation that becomes visible and becomes a medium for God saying what he wants to say or doing what he wants to say. They're no better than the winds. Certainly God never said to an angelos of whatever form it takes. Certainly God has never said to an angelos, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. They're not that important. But this human being who is the descendant of David, with whom God made an everlasting covenant. You can't get more exalted. You can't have a more important role and a more important standing in the purposes of God than what God gave to him. Okay? For this reason, then Paul draws it together in the, for the punchline. For this reason, it is all the more... Remember how he started. In the past days, in many portions and in many ways, God spoke to us. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. How important is the son? He's more important than anyone else in all of reality. For this reason, it is all the more necessary for us to pay attention to what we heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through Angeloi, the, the Mosaic covenant, came through Angeloi, It came through God visibly manifesting himself on Mount Sinai in a variety of different ways. The visible sign of the finger of God carving the Ten Commandments in the rock. That was an angeloi, an angelos, excuse me. That was an angelos doing that, a visible manifestation of Yahweh himself. If the word spoken through angeloi was firm, such that every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, You got punished for disobeying it. You got judged for disobeying it. It was crucial that you pay attention to what God said to you and required of you through the teaching and word of his angeloi. If that was firm such that every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation as has been taught to us by Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Son? who is the one that God appointed to be that eternal king over the eternal kingdom of God. You think you can shine him on and get away with it? You think you can shine him on and God won't care? He cared if you ignored the law, the Mosaic covenant. You don't think he'll care if you ignore the gospel that he sent his son into the world to declare? You got to think twice about that. You can't be shining him on. Don't drift away from this message that you have embraced about Jesus and his gospel. This salvation, having got its beginning by being spoken through the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard, the apostles, God also testifying with them, with those apostles, by both signs and wonders, by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. 
So in the same way that he confirmed the teaching of Jesus through the miracles that Jesus performed, he confirmed the eyewitness testimony of the apostles through the miracles that they performed. God had their back as well, and he gave evidence that they were telling the truth and had the authority to speak what they spoke by the miracles that accompanied their ministry. That's his first exhortation in the book of Hebrews. Don't be drifting away from this. Now, this is written to a particular time and place, to a particular culture, to a certain set of problems. It's not written to us. What is its relevance to us? I think it's relevant to us in two particular ways. One, what Paul is working really, really, really hard to do with his readers is tell them, don't let the humanity of Jesus be a problem to you. Don't allow the humanity of Jesus to make you stumble and cause you to reject the exalted status and role that he plays just because he doesn't measure up to your sense of what a Messiah should look like. You think a Messiah should have a lot of bells and whistles. He didn't. Don't let that be a problem to you. That was the message to them. I think that remains a significant message to us today. Our theology goes in the direction of creating the theology that we would prefer rather than the theology that's true. And we might prefer a snazzier Jesus than we got. But if we do so, we're falling prey to exactly the same problem that Paul is addressing with these people. He's not snazzy enough for you? Well, yeah, God came in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different forms, and a lot of them were awfully impressive, way more impressive than Jesus. But God never promised them what he promised Jesus. God never promised those angeloi what he promised Jesus. So don't let, don't, don't let that get in the way. And then secondly, we have to adjust it a little bit for us. In their case, they were growing weary. And they were growing weary because they were being persecuted. Because they believed in Jesus, they were being thrown in prison, they were being beaten up, they were being killed. All kinds of mean, nasty stuff was happening to them precisely because they were followers of Jesus. And they're getting tired of getting beat up. And as they grow tired of getting beat up, all of a sudden they're attracted to reasons to reject Jesus, reasons to think that maybe he's really not the Messiah that he thought he was. And so they are drifting away and just returning back to their Judaism and letting Jesus be gone. That's not our problem, at least not yet, not now. We're not being beat up for being believers in Jesus. But I think we have a different, maybe even a more difficult problem than they had. We get bored. The gospel message is so commonplace. It's so ubiquitous within Christian culture. We can't go anywhere. We can't sing any hymn. We can't sing any chorus. We can't hear anyone who's a Christian talk without some kind of reminder that this is all about Jesus, the Messiah, who came and died for our sins and was raised from the dead, and now we can have eternal life. whoop de doo It just becomes so, so rote to us that we fail to recognize, are you kidding me? <laughs> This is, this is the way in which God solved the absolute number one problem of mankind. The fact that we human beings, if left alone, are going to have our whole existence abolished, negated, canceled, and nullified by death. And the whole point of our existence is just going to be erased by this silly thing called death. And this message that we take so for granted and take so lightly and get so bored with 
is the message of how that problem was absolutely and completely solved by Jesus. And this one who's been, who Paul is singing the praises of was promised an eternal kingdom, an everlasting kingdom beyond death, where death can't touch it. Death is no longer a part of that kingdom. And if we have a part in that kingdom, then we will live forever. We will be immortal. And obviously, some people have argued, an eternity of this is problematic. But it's not an eternity of this. It's not an eternity of futility and sin and evil and injustice and grief and sorrow and pain and all the stuff that makes up the fabric of our existence right now. It's not going to be that. It's going to be life not only beyond death, but beyond futility and beyond disappointment and beyond sorrow and beyond all the things that rob this otherwise rich and wonderful existence, make it bittersweet and rob it of its richness and rob it of its reward. But that's going to be gone in the eternal kingdom of God where righteousness will reign and justice will reign and truth will reign. No more lies, no more deception, no more taking advantage of one another. Everyone will be upright. Everyone will have integrity. When you begin to get the full picture, it begins to sound interesting. And that's the gospel that Jesus brought into the world to deliver us to us. Paul's exhortation to us, I would think, would be, don't be drifting away. Don't let yourself get bored. Don't let yourself get lulled to sleep by how commonplace the message is, how ordinary the message seems, how taken for granted that message is going to be to you. Don't be lulled to sleep by that. Constantly remind yourself how absolutely spectacularly awesome that message and that promise is. Otherwise, you're going to get yourself in trouble. You'll drift away, and that reality that you take for granted won't even be your reality. It's not even going to be true for you if you drift away. Okay, that's the exhortation. That's its relevance to us, I think, of the exhortation of the first part of Hebrews. Let me pause there for any questions or comments about any, anything in that, because we're going to leave it behind now. So, Jack, you made a distinction between how Paul uses the term angeloi in the first part of the argument and then how he used it in the later argument. It's a theophany in the first part of the argument. It's these practical little icons later. Is that oh, oh, in Psalm, yeah. Mm-hmm. In Psalm, yes. Yeah, in Psalm 97, yeah. And right. so can you talk a little bit about how you decided that's what was going on? Well, let's look at not Psalm 97 first. In Psalm 97, I think he as much as says so, he says, he only quotes the part that says, worship him all you, un-. okay. In Hebrew, it's worship him all you Elohim, worship him all you gods in Hebrew. The Greek translation of that says, worship him all you angeloi, and that's what he quotes here is the Greek translation of that. So the question, we have several questions. What's the relationship between the Elohim in the Hebrew and the angeloi in the Greek? If all I had was the Hebrew, it's pretty easy because although he only quotes that line, if you go back to Psalm 97, to Psalm 97, the line right before that is, let all you be ashamed who serve graven images, worship him, all you Elohim. So what makes the most sense to me is that what he's saying is, you who have made your little graven images of Yahweh and are worshiping Yahweh by worshiping your little graven images that you put on your dashboard and hang from your mirror and stick in your pocket and wear around your neck and you know all those things that you do to worship Yahweh 
through these artifacts that you've created, you should be ashamed of yourself. God told you not to make graven images of him. Why? Well, because ultimately God had something else in mind. What God had in mind is, I'm going to appoint the image of me that I want you to honor and I want you to worship. Don't you be making the image of me that I want you to to honor and worship. He's coming. I'm going to bring him into reality. We know him as Jesus. So you should be ashamed for having disobeyed me and having made these graven images to worship me by. And then I think so ironically he's saying, all you gods, and there I think he's referring to these graven images, you gods, bow down and worship this king, this human being, because that's the image that I, Yahweh, have appointed. So I think that's what's going on in Psalm 97. Now, the question is, why do the translators translate Elohim Angeloi? What's that all about? And there are a couple of options. The one I'm being, I'd be willing to bet on, even though I don't have evidence for this, I'd be willing to bet that if we had enough information, we would find a precedent for Angelos meaning some kind of depiction of Yahweh a messenger in the sense that it's something that represents to us who God is, and that that's one meaning of angelos as it got used in the ancient world. Now, I don't know any precedent for that. The other possibility, well, I won't complicate it with that. There is a whole other way we could think about it, and either way it would come to the same thing. It's not that Psalm 97 is talking about theophanies, but it is talking about messengers of Yahweh. You follow? So these little gods that we make are, are in a sense just messengers of Yahweh or however we understand the psalm. And so Paul is using that to expand to the point that he wants to make, and that is, I know that the kind of messengers that you're talking about are theophanies. I realize that. You don't expect the Messiah to come as a graven image. You expect him to come as a theophany. But I don't care if we're talking about theophanies or the wind, or graven images. I don't care what kind of angelos you're talking about. They're all just messengers. And what I want to contrast is a mere messenger of Yahweh as over against the son of Yahweh. It's to the son that the covenant came. It's to the son that the promises were made. It's the son who has been exalted to be the most important being in all of created reality, no matter what theophany you want to point to, none of them had directed at them the same promises that came to this ordinary mortal human being. So that, that's how I'm thinking about it. As he's going through this, he sort of sidesteps and mentions the apostles, um, you know, those who have I'm heard. sorry, he sidesteps the what you say? Well, he's, he's, it's, all, it's all about Jesus, and then he talks about the salvation, the message brought to us by those who were there, those who heard. Yeah, yeah. And he speaks of them in the third person, Mm-hmm. It's, it's an odd thing. thing he well, says, okay, I, I misspoke. The them that he's talking about there are not the apostles. Okay. It's the eyewitnesses because they're the ones that, who claimed to know firsthand what he taught, what he said, and so on. Paul can't make that claim. Good point. And so when he says wonders, various miracles, as if there's a difference between each of those, mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you explored? What I, I haven't. Mean? I haven't thought about that. That's a good question. Yeah, I, I'm okay. not sure. Okay, let's press on. So now we're at two five in your normal Bible, or part three in my translation section two, a whole new section. Now in this section, especially the first subsection of this section, he's going to focus 
directly now on the two issues that make it problematic to his readers that Jesus would be the Messiah. One is his humanity, and the second thing is his death. They're obviously they're connected and they're related to each other, but his death and his humanity, he's going to focus on that, and he's going to say that it was exactly in line with everything God was up to in, in even devising the whole concept of the Messiah. It was completely fitting that he be a human being, and it was completely fitting that he die. Now, in a sense, the whole letter is about that. But right up front here in this very early section, he's going to make a very brief and quick case for why that's fitting. Okay? Now, he did not put in subjection to Angeloi the realm to come, concerning which we are speaking. So still in the background is, wouldn't it have been more appropriate for God to send his Messiah as some kind of Angelos? And again, I think as some kind of theophany. Now, he did not put in subjection to Angeloi the realm to come, the domain to come, concerning which we are speaking, but someplace a certain man has testified, saying, What is man that you remember him, even the son of man that you are mindful of him? You have made him a little lower than the Angeloi. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Indeed, you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, in subjecting all things to him, so he just finished saying that I have put all things in subjection in your, in your feet. Now, Paul comments on what the psalm says. Now, in subjecting all things to him, this one called the Son, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who is made a little lower than the angeloi, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the death that he suffered, to the end that by the grace of God he might taste death in the place of every person. Now it was appropriate for him, on account of whom are all things, and in the interests of whom are all things, it was appropriate for the one bringing many sons to glory to qualify the forerunner of their deliverance through his sufferings. For then both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one humanity." For this reason, he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing your praise. But as a response, I will put my trust in him. Even more, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Okay, let's take this a bit by bit. Now, he didn't, he's going to go to Psalm 8, which as we looked at a few weeks ago now, is a meditation, I think, by David, on the Davidic covenant. God came to David and he made a promise to David, I'm going to establish your throne forever. And even there in 1 Samuel 7 and in in the corresponding passages in Chronicles and elsewhere, David responds by going, me? Who am I? That you would appoint to such an incredible role and standing and status in your purposes. Who am I? Which is exactly what Psalm 8 says. What is this man that you are mindful of him? even the son of man that you would take care for him. He's asking, who is this man, David? Who am I that you would make this promise to me? And the one that you've appointed to be the son, that you would be mindful of him. And then he just simply goes on to kind of reflect on what exactly it is God promised him. And the whole the psalm goes on to say, you've given me authority over all the works of your hands. 
all of created reality, the whole, the whole created order, all of creation you've put in subjection to me. That's your promise. That is, you promised to, that I would be the embodiment of your rule. You rule over everything. That means I'm the embodiment of your rule over everything. So he's meditating on that. Well, David obviously didn't realize that. And what Paul is going to point out here is, we don't even see Jesus realizing that yet, right? Jesus does not see all things in subjection to him, not yet. So, but the point that he's making is, right off the bat, that wasn't to an angelos that he made that promise, folks. That was to the human son of David that God made that promise. Now, he did not put in subjection to angeloi the realm to come, concerning which we are speaking, but someplace a certain man has testified saying, and then he quotes the psalm, now in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. So what was the scope of the promise to David? Rule over literally everything. There ain't nothing that God didn't put under the domain of the son's rule and his authority. So in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So look around. Is Jesus ruling the world? Is Jesus ruling the nations? Is Jesus ruling over all of creation right now? Doesn't seem so. No, we don't see what God has ultimately promised for his king, his eternal king, the son of David, that has not become a reality. However, even though that has not become a reality yet, we do see him who was made a little lower than the angeloi, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the death that he suffered to the end that by the grace of God he might taste death in place of every person. That is, that's the end that he was aiming at when he tasted death because of the death that he suffered. Why did he suffer that death? To the end that he might taste death for every one of us. That's why he went to the cross. Okay, but notice what he's saying here. We don't see Jesus ruling over all of the created order, but we do see him qualified to do so. We do see him crowned with glory and honor. Now, what exactly does he have in mind? How did we see him crowned with glory and honor? I think what Paul has in mind is he's heard the story about how Jesus was raised from the dead. He came back from the dead. God did not leave him dead in the grave. That was huge in its own right. And then he appeared to his disciples a number of different times. And the very last time they saw him, he took them out to the Mount of Olives. And from the Mount of Olives, he ascended into the heavens. And they watched him go. They watched him rise up into the atmosphere and disappear into the clouds. And angels, messengers, came along and said, just as you see him going now, he's going to return exactly the same way. He's going to come back and descend out of the atmosphere and uh, come back here. Where was he going? Was, he, was this a magician's trick? No, it was a sign of his exalted status. He was going to receive his reward. He was going to be crowned with glory and honor and to be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the way the apostles always describe where Jesus is now. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, crowned with glory and honor. Well, what does that amount to? What that amounts to is the one that had a destiny to rule over 
all of creation, the whole created order. That was his destiny. We don't see him doing that right now. That's true. But we do know that today he stands qualified to play that role in eternity. He's just waiting for God in his purposes to say, now, go put the enemies of God, go put your enemies and the enemies of God to death. Destroy them. Wipe them out. Bring my kingdom to, into fruition. Now, now is the time to do that. Jesus is just waiting for orders from God to affect his rule over the created reality. But until God gives him those orders, is there anything more that Jesus has to do to earn that authority or to gain that authority or to be qualified for that authority? Nope, he's fully qualified. He's seated right now at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the being crowned with glory and honor. But, but you see the point that Paul's making to his readers here. Why was he crowned with glory and honor? Because of his death. So Paul, I think, is quite clearly and explicitly and without any question connecting the role of Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords with what he did by willingly and voluntarily going to his death on the cross. Jesus, by allowing himself to taste death for you and me, to die the death that you and I deserve, and thereby make it unmistakable for all of history that God does not take my depravity and my rebellion lightly. If God were simply just, he'd smash me. I would be tortured like Jesus was tortured by the Romans if justice were to be done for who I am. So let there be no mistake about it. Jesus has made it clear what I deserve. He tasted death for me. But because he was willing to do that, God has exalted him above every name that is named on heaven, in heaven or on earth. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, the most significant and exalted and honorable being in all of created reality. And he earned that, if you will, or he was rewarded with that because God gave him an ordeal to fulfill. God gave him a race to run. God gave him a journey to finish. And the journey found its way, wound its way through the cross. And unless he finished the journey, there's no reward. You get a reward at the end of the race. Paul's going to explicitly make that point later in Hebrews. He says, that's how it was for Jesus. It's exactly the same way for you. Jesus ran his race, and we know he got his reward. So if you run your race, you know you'll get your reward. It's the same for you as it is for him. But he's already got his reward. We saw him go get it. Okay, so he's explicitly making this connection between what the reward that Jesus has received to enter into that which had been predestined for him, the role that had been predestined for him from before the foundation of the world. He was rewarded with actually entering into being qualified for that role. And what qualified him for that role? His death. Okay, you see how this is answering his readers. You got a problem with his death? He couldn't be your king unless he died the death that he died. It was all part of how God was bringing this thing to pass. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't something that happened and God said, oh, vey, how am I going to fix this? Oh, I know, I'll raise him from the dead and do some other stuff. It wasn't, God didn't, he's not patching things up from before the foundation of the earth. This was the story of how he would create a king 
to be king of kings and lord of lords, who was the very stamp of God himself in his person, the man who was God. And that man who was God is going to be given an ordeal to go to the cross. And in doing that, he's going to be obedient. In his obedience, he's going to show a heroic kind of an obedience and an amazing, profound kind of love. And that obedience and that love is going to be so pleasing to God that God will reward him with his destined role of being king of kings and lord of lords over the eternal kingdom of God that he promised to David, that he promised that David's son would receive. So the death's not an accident. The death is not a problem. The death is no reason to reject Jesus. It's all part of the picture that makes it all fit, that makes it all possible, that makes it all work. So don't be rejecting him because he died. Fall on your face and worship him because he died. That's his argument here. Let me pause there for questions you might have. So he just went out of his way to talk about how Jesus was more than the Angeloi. Mm-hmm. And then he says, but now we see him was made a little lower than the Angeloi. What okay. is he doing there? Yeah. Okay. Again, in the Hebrew, Psalm 8 says, you have made him a little lower than Elohim. Again, which translates God, usually as... Tran- and so look at your English Bible. It'll probably say, you have made him a little lower than God. Your English translation of, of Psalm 8. The Greek translation translates it, you have made him a little lower than the angeloi. Okay? So obviously, angelos means to the translators of the Greek New Testament, Old Testament something that has a wider range of meaning than we understand it to have in order for them to translate it that way. Now, a little detour here. A lot of people read Psalm 8 as if this is a reference to Jesus' incarnation. They don't take it as being David that he's talking about. They take it as being Jesus that the psalm is talking about. And they think that, he's talk- they think that the psalm is talking about his incarnation. You have made him, Jesus, a little lower than the angels, that is, Jesus, who used to be the second person of the Trinity and was exalted as high as you can possibly get, condescended to become lower even than the angels. He became a human being, and human beings are inferior to the angels. So he condescended to be a mere human being who is inferior to the angels. But notice the, if you have another English translation, I translated it a little lower than the angeloi. A lot of your English translations have a little while lower than the Angeloi because their theology is, yeah, he used to be in the Godhead. He condescended for the time that he's on earth to be a little lower than the Angeloi, but when he died and was raised, now he's superior to the Angeloi again because he's returned to his status as, uh, as a person in the Godhead, something like that. There are a lot of people who would look at it that way. But... If we realize what's going on in Psalm 8, it's not talking about Jesus. It's talking about David and any son of David who comes after him. And in Psalm 8, it is not a statement of condescension. It's a statement of exaltation. What is this man that you remember him, even the son of man that you are mindful of him? You have made him a little lower than God. That's the role of the son of God is to be the most exalted being in all of reality. The only one higher than the Son is God himself. So the Son of Man, that is the one seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, 
his standing is so exalted that he's just a little lower than God in his standing. That's not condescension. That's going from zero to 60 in less than a second. I mean, you're being exalted to the highest possible place in all of reality, just barely less significant than God himself. That's exaltation. And that's why he's saying, who am I? Who am I that you've been mindful of me in this way? Who am I that you've given me this kind of exalted status? What is with this? I, don't des- I was just a baby once. I nursed at my mother's breast. I'm an insignificant, dependent little creature. And you are making me a little lower than God? That's the promise that you're making to me? So, I'm not sure how, how do I work myself out of this. So, it's a statement of exaltation. It's not really lower than the angeloi. It's lower than God, basically. Now, he may be, it just depends on what the translators meant by angeloi there. It could very well be, what is an angelos? If we think of it as a theophany, let's take the burning bush on Mount Sinai, and that's a theophany on God. Is the theophany more important than Jesus or less important than Jesus? Was the burning bush on Mount Sinai more important than Jesus or less important than Jesus? Well, it depends. In one sense, Jesus is just a little lower than that burning bush. If you see through the burning bush to the Yahweh that it is a visible manifestation of, then Jesus is a little lower than Yahweh in importance. But if you see the burning bush as the burning bush, Jesus is more exalted than the burning bush. Even though it is the manifestation of Yahweh, so is Jesus. (laughs) He's the manifestation of Yahweh too, and he's the more important manifestation of Yahweh. Because the burning bush is temporary. It's not going to be around forever. It's not eternal. We're probably never even going to see the burning bush on Mount Sinai throughout the eternal kingdom of God. But Jesus will always be there, reigning as king forever. So he's the way more important and honorable manifestation of Yahweh. So it depends on whether you're asking, is Jesus more important than Yahweh, or is Jesus, the manifestation of Yahweh, more important than the burning bush, the manifestation of Yahweh? In that sense, he's greater, and that's what chapter 1 has been all about. But the psalm is not talking about that. The psalm is talking about his exalted status. You took this mere human being, and you exalted him to the heights of being just barely lower than God himself in importance. So their angeloi is representing the exalted being of God. So why is the psalm as quoted in Hebrews, you have angeloi there, which is plural, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So what is it in, in the psalm? I mean, it's referring to God, mm-hmm. singular. Then mm-hmm. why do you have a plural? Thing? Well, I'm not sure. It would depend on what I don't know is exactly why the translators are doing what they're doing. Elohim is plural in Hebrew is plural in form, could have something to do with that, that they render the Greek in plural to sort of reflect the plural Elohim. Or it could be that the translators are taking it very much in keeping with what the issue is here in Hebrews, and that what the translators are saying is, Jesus, you're little lower than all those manifestations of God himself that were God himself. I mean, sorry, not Jesus, David. David is saying, I'm the only ones more important than me are the times that God showed up in history and, and made himself visible. That would seem to be intention what Paul's arguing, but for the reasons that I just outlined, I, I don't think it really is. I mean, he's not, because he would be looking at those angeloi, those various manifestations of God in history and, and in creation, 
as being God himself, just in visible form. And what David is saying is, who's more important, me or God? Well, God, obviously, but wow, this covenant that you've made with me, you've exalted me to a status where I'm almost important as God himself. But he would be using, for some reason, the manifestations of God to represent the being of God. That could be because of the Jewish tendency to not like to talk about God. So they found oblique ways to refer to God, maybe. If you look at any Jewish literature today, if they write God, it's G-D. They don't dare print the word God. So I, I think you begin seeing that all the way back. And certainly in the Masoretic text, you may already begin to see that back in the Septuagint, where they're trying to refer to God obliquely rather than directly, because they don't think that they're worthy of naming the name of God directly. But I, I'm not sure. I, I really don't know the answer to that. Jack, is there a connection with his quoting of the psalm in verse 6 with the statement that he makes before it, for he did not subject to Angeloi the world to come, or however you translated that, concerning which we are speaking? Is this, the quotation of the psalm providing an alternative to that or related to that, or is he moving on to something else in the way you're thinking about it? Well, the psalm is related to that, but I don't think the appearance of the word angelos in the psalm is related to that. I think that's just almost accidental that it occurs because he doesn't do anything with the angelos after the psalm. What he does with is he subjected all things to him. That's what he camps on. He subjected all things to him. There's not a single cotton-picking thing that he didn't subject to him in all of created reality. Everything, literally everything, is subjected to him, but we don't yet see all things subjected to him. Nevertheless, we see... So he doesn't bring up Angelos again. So I don't think that's at the heart of his argument. If he had not quoted the Septuagint and had quoted the Hebrew instead, and we had in our English the word God instead of angels there, it wouldn't have affected his argument one whit. Okay, well, that, thanks. That's helpful because that's what it seemed like you were saying, basically, is that the word angelos or angeloi in there really isn't functioning in his right. argument. It's just yeah, I don't think so. an accidental. Okay. So we're, we're about out of time. Time for one more if there's... He said that um, he might taste death in the place of every person. Mm-hmm. And I'm just kind of curious about the taste death. I don't know if that's used other places, or I wonder why it's used and what it really means versus that he died, like he died so that we might not have to die. I don't think it means anything different. Taste death is just we might say that he might experience death, I think is what he means by that. That's maybe more in keeping with our idiom, that he might experience death in place of every person. Does that help or not so much? Well, you're saying that you think they mean the same things. As dying, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think he could have said uh, to the end that he might die in place of every person, yeah. But to taste death probably throws the emphasis a little better onto the experience of suffering that he experienced, which is the very thing that I think people are having a problem with about Jesus. Jesus should be above, the Messiah should be above that. He should be unaffected. He should be un... He, he shouldn't suffer. He shouldn't have to go through what human beings go through. That's too demeaning. That's too degrading of him. That he should be above all that. 
And what Paul is saying is, no, he went through exactly, I mean, we're not even there yet, but he's going he's gonna to talk about how appropriate it was that he suffered because we suffer. So when we get to, I mean, what he's going to say in the next paragraph is, we're not going to get to the kingdom of God, and we're going we're to get there, and God's going to have a Martian, a, a morally perfect, sinless, unfallen Martian who grew up on Mars and lived a Mars life, and God is going to say, we've got an eternal kingdom here, and here's the guy I want you to serve as king. I mean, just, I mean, just think for a second how kind of jarring that would seem. Why should I serve him? I, well, he's a Martian. <laughs> he's a big deal. I mean, he's better than you human beings. Okay. But there's something just really out of sync with that. What instead is going to happen is I'm going to get to the eternal kingdom of God, and he's going to say to me, here's my son Jesus, serve him, and I'm going to know immediately why I should serve him. He gave his life for me. He owns me. He bought me. He redeemed me. He loved me with the profound kind of love that was willing to taste death in order that I would have a place in the eternal kingdom of God. That I, I'm not going to hesitate to serve the one who has loved me so profoundly that he was willing to taste death for me as opposed to some abstract, big deal individual that God says, I appointed him king. That's basically where he's headed here. So he's saying, do you, do you see how appropriate it is that the very one that he destined to be king is the one who suffered for you in order that, that you and he might be bound together forever? That, that's appropriate. So don't reject him because he was crucified. Honor him because he was crucified. Believe in him because he was crucified. Worship him because he was crucified. Don't say, nah, I don't think he's it, because he was crucified. Okay, we'll come back to this. I've got to let you go.